Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. All right, welcome to Quick Show. My name is Greg Matson. I am your host. In this episode, our guest is Sky Sorensen. Sky is the co-host of the podcast Sit Down with Sky and Preston. He and his friend Preston defend gospel principles in the context of LGBTQ issues. They're both active gay members of the church married to women in the temple this is always an interesting topic to talk about but we're going to kind of touch on a number of different subjects in in uh in regards to being a faithful member of the church in regards to an identity of being gay same-sex attraction and then i'm very interested in your take on the messaging from the church and, and kind of how you feel about that and, and where they're going and, and maybe where you'd like to see it go. But let's start off with your podcast. What got you, what was the impetus to, to get going with uh, Sit Down with Sky and Preston? It's a great question. There's a little, it's, um, there's a little bit to that, but I will try and condense it as much as possible. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on. Obviously, I, I love the show and appreciate the invite. Um, but I, so it all kind of started in kind of an interesting way so i um i had a, a twitter with very little followers um and i tweeted something about my mixed orientation marriage something that was meant to be kind of cheeky kind of funny um but obviously to like to, to members of the church it was meant to to make them laugh and i guess I'll, I'll quote the tweet and not just beat around the bush um it was something to the effect of being in a mixed orientation marriage is a lot like being at Disneyland. Excuse me, I'm like out of breath. I don't know why I've been fiddling with um, equipment here. You're in the altitude. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a lot like being at Disneyland and having people tell you you'd be, you'd be better off at Red Flags. Um, red Flags may have more roller coasters, but it'll never beat the happiest place on earth. So it's meant to like be a little cheeky and, and just kind of shine a light on how I feel I've gotten the better end of the bargain. Um, I tweeted the that, response on that. What's that? How was the response on that? Well, that's, yeah, that's where things got interesting. So I, I was expecting just my few hundred followers to get a chuckle out of it and that would be the end of it. Um, but it, so not even the actual tweet, but a screenshot of my tweet um, was picked up by someone completely like unrelated and unrelated interaction they, they found my profile and just screenshotted my tweet as well as my profile that said something about being in a mixed orientation marriage and tweeted um something like just a point uh, like a mocking finger at me and my relationship and that that blew up quite a bit um from that i had i mean news organizations reaching out to me and wanting to do stories and i had some documentary 
um, it like requests to do documentaries. It was just crazy, just a, a firestorm of of media and strangers attacking and just having a very passionate opinion about my relationship, which was a really weird situation to be in. Um, but I ended up, we ended up going with, we actually did agree to do an interview with um, a writer from the New York Post who we thought did like a good job as an outsider interviewing us and and finding out our story. And so anyway, that, that story ran. And so that's kind of how my name got out there to some extent. From, from that whole experience, um, I just had like a realization and kind of a sense of responsibility to my younger self growing up. I mean, growing up with social media was hard enough, but the way that things have progressed to where it's so prolific and a lot of teens are not really not raised just with social media, but they are raised by social media in a lot of cases. I just have a, like a sense of responsibility and I guess feel for the rising generation and having to navigate such confusing waters. So I just picture my younger self growing up in in this environment and how difficult it would be to parse out the truth. Um, That along with just like, I have a visceral reaction to mistruth and I have to speak up about it. Sometimes that gets me into trouble. Sometimes it's beneficial. That all led me to have the idea to create a TikTok channel where I would just create these little um, f- little videos that were essentially apologetics, just like meant to be kind of lighthearted but tackle hard issues. Um, so I did that for a little bit. The channel was originally a friend recommended. I call call it TikTok. Let's see, we TikTok of Christ. Um, so we did that. And when I got to LGBTQ issues, it was just clear to me that I had a lot more to say than I could in just a short TikTok video. So I've never like had the desire to be in front of the camera or even a microphone uh, to speak my mind because it's not something that I have ever really excelled at. It's something that doesn't come easy to me. I've always wanted to be behind the camera. I went to school to be behind a camera, um, but I just had the like the idea spark in my mind one day, one of those shower ideas that come when you're in the shower. (laughs) And I just couldn't let the idea go. And really soon after that, I I decided to buy the equipment that I needed and started to get things going. Um, And I guess the rest is history. Okay. What... Let me ask you, backing up on, on, on your tweet, why do you think there would be a mocking response to you talking about your relationship? That's a great question. It's something I've thought a lot about. Um, it's, I, I mean, there's a lot to it. There's obviously, if, if I'm happy, um, like if, if I can be happy as um, a gay man, and I, I do, we can talk about that. I do use that, that identifier, but mm-hmm. more in like a orbital sort of manner, just a way to be more like direct and, clear anyway we can talk about that but if if i can be happy as a gay man married to a woman um then a lot of like a lot of the more progressive politics that sort of worldview starts to crumble and so my really my existence or like my relationship is 
a threat to that worldview in a lot of ways. And so it creates this really visceral reaction where, um, I mean, I have all sorts of reactions. I have people who seem to be genuinely concerned about my happiness. Some it's more condescending and they, um, I mean, I had one recently that got a fair amount of attention. Let me just read it. It might provide some insight here. Um, He said something like, I'm really sorry that you believe your faith requires you to deny who you are. I believe God made you just right and that he did not make you to struggle against who you are. Um, So that idea is sprung on me a lot. Like I'm denying who I am. Basically, every sort of way that they can finagle my situation other than I am in a happy, fulfilling relationship cuts against their worldview and and it's hard to wrestle with that. And so a lot of people just lash out, I think, in anger. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to me that there is that kind of, I mean, I, I ask you rhetorically that question, right? Because I know that the answer to that, but it's it's odd to me that in a world that professes diversity and you know choice and, and everything else, that you can't have your choice, right? right? When you give your choice and what you want to do, then uh, then there's a pushback. And and so to me, the underlying issue there is not that there, there is diversity that's wanted. It's there's something specific that is wanted and, and, uh, it, and it's not necessarily diversity, right? It's not necessarily, uh, um, the, the, the typical identitarian answer. Now I do have a question about, um, mixing this in with, I'm guessing that an, uh, your, you probably had some of your followers were members of the church that were on that tweet, I, I would imagine. Yeah. Right. So, so you get, you get kind of this mix here. I mean, your, your interview is with the New York Post, but there's kind of a mix within the church and outside of the church, but it's a very similar response depending on how you, you feel about what I would call identitarianism. And, uh, you, you, you talk about, um, your identity as a gay man. And that someone is responding to you saying, you know, I'm sorry, you can't be who you were meant to be, who God made you to be. And yet the messaging from the church, something I've been picking up on for a few years, is this this idea of identity and how important it is and how it seems to be getting watered down, where President Nelson goes in and talks about, number one, we're a child of God. Number two, we are a child of the covenant. Number three, we are disciples of Christ, and then all other identities and labels come down below that. And if we take those other identities and labels and we try to put them above those other three, then then we're going to run into problems. And that seems to be, with your example of the response there, seems to be what people are saying. They want you to take an identity. In fact, we whatever that means, whatever gay means, right, mm-hmm. as an identity to someone, and, and place it above the idea of those other three identities. Yeah. It, it's, it's odd to me that, first of all, I, I, I'm glad the church is focusing so much on this. They're doing it over and over again. They just went over it last week again with uh, Elder Christofferson at BYU. But it's, it's odd to me that people want to raise these other identities and place them up above, you know, your identity as a child of God, your identity as... What you you know, you, I mean, I, you you mentioned to me already, so I'll say it. You, you've been married in the temple, right? A child of the covenant and, and a temple marriage, and raise these other identities above it. How do you how do you navigate through that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, President Nelson said it best, and and you reiterated those three identities that need to be the priority in our life. And I mentioned earlier, um, I really like how Preston, my my friend and co-host, he he always explains like the use of the label gay in his life, and and I it rings true for me as well. He says that the the label gay is orbital in his life, like he has his core identity as those three things, a child of the covenant, child of God, disciple of Jesus Christ. And then obviously those other roles in our life, father, husband, Mm -hmm. um, brother, all of those as well that make up like the core nucleus or whatever you want to call it in our identity. And then gay is just like an, an orbital thing that describes part of our experience and part of, um, just like how we view the world and all of these things. So it is um, important to some extent, but it's definitely not core to our our identity. And I I do like how the church has been, been focusing on identity and and just how important it is to elevate those, those three main pieces of identity. And I like what um, president Nelson said in that talk. He said, any identifier that is not compatible with those three basic designations will ultimately let you down. Yes. And I think that's a really important point and something that I really try to internalize because um, I like I do witness that. If I put too many stakes in my quote-unquote identity as someone attracted to men, like if that is a core, core piece of my identity, there there is going to be this tension where one has to give like my relationship with God and my understanding of him and and relationship within the church versus my sexuality and like my insistence on putting all my eggs in that basket, something has to give. And that's where a lot of tension occurs with a lot of gay members of the church where they try to, I guess, elevate both of those in equal importance. And this inevitable intention does happen and causes a lot of grief that I think we'd be better off avoiding if we elevate those three more important identities. So if this is a universal principle, right. And so we can look at other labels and I, you know, you can talk about nationalism. You can, you can talk about uh, race, you know, uh, political affiliation. These are all other labels and identities that sometimes we take and we do raise above these other three identities, but uh, one of the things that you're in, in that response that you talked about, one of the, one of the words you said there was happy. Um, is this then what president Nelson is saying a universal principle that will provide joy and happiness for someone with same sex attraction, someone who's gay, uh, or is it just something you are going to have to struggle through until you see what happens in the next world? <laughs> I would say unequivocally that the principles of the gospel are designed to make anybody happier. Like no matter who you are, no matter what your experience is, it is a a universal, like we call it an infinite atonement. It is also an infinite um, gospel. Like it applies to all of us and it can help all of us. I really like um, Elder Oaks gave um, a, a talk, I think yesterday at BYU, his mm-hmm. devotional. He talked a lot about separating ourselves from the world, um, specifically BYU. Um, I think our next show is going to be centered around that. But I like what he he talked about in this regard. 
Um, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, let's see. Well, he's quoting a lot of Spencer W. Oh, Kimmel. There we go. They've really been focusing yeah. on that a lot. So he said um, the choices, like he was asking a question of what choices are we making that help um, either consciously or subconsciously adopt different priorities. So if if we get to the point where the priorities in our life don't match gospel, like the gospel trajectory, the plan of salvation, that can happen. And to the point where we may not feel like the plan of salvation applies to us or that the gospel can make us better because our priorities don't match. Well, the problem isn't the gospel. The problem is our priorities. How can we reintegrate our priorities into the gospel if we can learn how to do that and then give our all to Jesus Christ and, and his teachings, that's how the gospel applies to everyone. That's how we can get to a point where we maybe don't feel comfortable in the church or the gospel to a place where it is our strength and, and something that not is, is not endured. Like I don't feel like I am enduring being a member of the church as a gay man. I feel like the church and the gospel is my strength. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I believe that. You know, I wholeheartedly heartedly believe that. I think that those principles are key. I, I talk a lot about hierarchies and uh, it, with, with where our values are placed and what value is above another. And, and we can look at the same thing with identities and what what I would call uh, President Nelson's identity hierarchy. Um, if If you're taking certain things, certain principles, and you're trying to put them above the principles of the gospel, it, it's it, you're what you're, I mean, you're taking away an eternal principle. You're diminishing eternal principles. And so if you're looking for something that is long lasting, if you're looking for something that is eternal, if, if you're, if you're diminishing any eternal principle for what, you know, a feeling or for a different identity or whatever it might be, it, it's not going to end up as good as it could. Now, everybody's got their own choice. We can choose what we want. But if you're trying to stick with eternal principles, you know, it, you, you got to stick with eternal principles. And, and, and uh, uh, I, I think that the world right now, especially in the United States, is moving into a position where we're trying to pull away from these eternal principles more and more with the idea of identitarianism and, and pulling people apart. What do you think about the idea, or the, let's call them, I'm going to say tenets, let's just say principles. Let's, what, what do you think about the, the principles of, of tolerance and love? That's... Um... Yeah, something I've thought a lot about because that that sort of phrase or like those um, those words are kind of a flashpoint or, or or what what is used as the justification for a lot of the the activism that we see. Um, so I think it's first important to point out that tolerance, like the the word tolerance, is kind of a, a loaded term. It's kind of a unclear. Um, unclear term that can be easily manipulated to fit a certain criteria or like to to reach a certain ends. So in a in a vacuum, tolerance I don't think is necessarily a virtue. It depends on what you're being tolerant of. Yeah. And even what, those, what are you tolerating? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even those in, in like the more progressive circles, activist circles who want or like pushing for LGBTQ rights further and further um, and pushing against religious rights in a lot of situations. I don't think they even believe that tolerance in and of itself is a virtue because they a lot of times will say, well, I am not tolerant of your intolerance. So if you can perceive someone else's way of doing things as intolerant, you don't have to be tolerant of them, but then you can still kind of claim this this um, label as tolerant. It's kind of this weird word game that that occurs. But like within these circles, what happens is love and advocacy or like love and tolerance are kind of these buzzwords that are used to set the tone or like to set certain um, criteria in order to be. So, for example, like in order to be accepted as a quote unquote ally by a lot of um, a lot of people in the LGBTQ world or activist circles, there there are a lot of conditions put on that. You you have to adopt their, their morality in order for them to accept your friendship or like your love. Whereas love is it's really like a one and a two way thing. I can love someone without them returning that. But if there's this condition set up to where I'm not going to accept your love unless you um, advocate for what I want to do. Um, it's a really dangerous place to be in, a very divisive place to be in. And a very, again, like you were saying, it's not a diverse situation. It's, it's you're wanting to control what others believe and you're framing it in this whole tolerance and love language, which like there are levels of radicalism, I think. There are some who are pushed this to an extreme and then some who um, maybe like lean toward compassion. Yeah. Yeah. More compassionate, maybe just a little bit misguided in that compassion. Yeah. I, I think it's about power. I mean, ultimately, I think it's ultimately about a, a power game there ultimately uh, in terms of tolerance and love. You know, I mean, to me, if I'm looking at love for someone, cause I, you know, I've got four kids and they're all adults. Now I've gone through this and I go through it still with each of my kids. Love is not tolerance. You know, it, it is, it just isn't. I mean, if I completely tolerate everything with my kids, regardless of what their age is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not helping them. Right. I, I, it's, it's love has to do with really caring for that person's well being, And, 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 and if that is not the goal right there to care really for their well being, ultimately based on, you know, my knowledge of principles and other things, I, I, it, 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 then it's not love to me, right? And sometimes that means tough love, and 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 sometimes it means uh, putting your arm around someone. And and it's, but I, I think it has a lot more to do with the the idea of charity and 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 really caring for someone and their well being. Um, here's another loaded question: what 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 do you think of the pride flag? Um, yeah. So I so I posted about this a while back so i you you sent me some of these questions beforehand so i was just kind of um reminding myself of what i put, had posts in the past and mm -hmm. it's um I, I have a lot of thoughts on it <laughs> it it has definitely become an an imperfect kind of convoluted 
political symbol. That's really, in its essence, that's what it is. Some use it for different reasons. Um, some use it, even within the church, some use it as a way to genuinely try to show love to those that they disagree with. Mm-hmm. I'm, like I'm willing to to give that. I think that that happens maybe even most of the time. But we have to look at the general message of pride and the pride flag and pride movement. What is what is the movement as a whole? What is the messaging? And what by extension, what message are we sending to impressionable LGBTQ members of the church who see us um, giving our allegiance or whatever to this organization that really isn't like an actual organization, just kind of an idea, a movement, a movement. Um, and I think, like I said a minute ago, there like there are different gradations of of people who choose to identify with that movement. Um, but I think you have to look at the loudest voices. You have to look at the loudest message within the movement. And right now, it's just incontrovertible. Incontrovertibly, it is a political symbol. It does mean. Um, it, it is used to represent political or um, progressive politics and to fight against religion. And again, like I said, there are gradations of how people use it, but we have to look at as a whole. And I think it is really hard to argue that the movement is not fighting against religious um, ideas or like religious values, especially when you look to those who kind of prop themselves up as quote unquote leaders of the movement. Um, their message is, is always very one-sided, very radical and very um, intolerant of religious values. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, that's why I don't wave it. You know, I, 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 uh, I there are, you know, I, I kind of compare it to the Confederate flag. You know, I wouldn't wave the Confederate flag either. Not, you know, I, I, I did when I was a kid, you know, I, I watched, uh, Dukes of Hazard, you know, and they had the this that the car with the Confederate flag flag on there and everything, and you know it wasn't as big of a deal back then. But um, you know, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There is a huge spectrum of what that symbol means, and I don't want confusion on on what I would put out there as a symbol that I'm going to support. I just don't I don't want the confusion of what I am saying and what I am supporting, and I think that. The idea that we were talking about with tolerance and love is the same idea sometimes with that flag is there's the kind of this misguided idea sometimes of, of, well, I'm being an ally or I'm being tolerant and I want to show that I'm a good person. And, but there's a lot of other things there, just like with the Confederate flag that, that, that can be a part of that, that, that have meaning and, uh, um, more and more. There is an issue to me with, you know, I, I would say the pride flag is the symbol of identitarianism to some degree. And, and more and more that symbol and the movement of identitarianism is going more and more against the traditional family. I mean, almost everything you can bring up in those areas is not something that supports a traditional family. And, and I think we're going to see that more and more as the movement grows and, and, and we start hit seeing more and more conflicts. Um, arising in politics and culture and in media and everything else. Um, and I think there's just a, a general issue with having um, symbols that we prop up, no matter what they are. 
like unless it's Jesus Christ, unless it's like the ultimate example, there are always going to be problems with symbols that we put all of our our eggs in. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with like the the Desnat movement. Um, I, I know what it is. Hashtag or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's it's something that I know a lot of members of the church who use it or have used it in the past who are good people wanting to use it as some sort of rallying cry to push gospel principles. But then there's kind of this other side who have adopted it to push really extreme um, and like horrible messages. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, it, it becomes like public perception. What, how do people see this? Is it really effective in doing what it's meant to do? Um, I think there are just like so many different ways that people can perceive it. I think it's in most cases, these symbols just become something more counterproductive than they are worth. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. Um, you know, I had a, a, an interview, I don't know, it's been a while, maybe a year ago with, uh, I don't know if you know who Patrick Mason is, um, but he's an LDS scholar. And um, we were talking about the issue of gay marriage in the church. And uh, he's, you know, he leads more on that identitarian side of things. And he's t- we're talking about, he's saying, well, we're, so we're talking about same-sex marriage in the temple. And he's saying, well, there are, the way he sees it is there are concentric circles of doctrine. And at the, in the center, very center, you have the very few things of, for example, uh, um, the atonement, right? Jesus paid for our sins so that we could repent and, and return to our Heavenly Father and grow. Um, which, by the way, is also under attack in the church. But um, and then and then as you go out from there, you have other concentric circles that are maybe not as core, right to to uh, to the to the church and and its doctrine. And that's where he places or views same sex marriage in the temple, right? Is is being out on one of these concentric circles of doctrine that is more malleable, right? It, it can be changed and moved based on timing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think there is something to the idea that there are different levels of what we would call doctrine. Like there are, we did an episode a while back on this. Um, some things that I just remember learning in a BYU class of how there are like the core doctrines. Then there are things, those, those are like the saving ordinances, the saving information that we need to know in order to be saved. <laughs> um, so there, there is that. And then like out in the circle, there are things that are important to know, but not necessarily key to our salvation. And then there are things that are more speculation. Like I, I do agree that there is something to that idea. Um, taking, I guess, um, same-sex unions and trying to fit it into that. Um, I would, I would classify the structure of eternal families as core doctrine. Um, if you want to know, in my opinion, what if you want to know what is core doctrine in the church. Pay attention to what is repeated over and over in ancient and modern scriptures and by our prophets. And it's very clear that the structure of the family isn't just this kind of orbital um, institution, like this orbital political sort of institution that um, changes over time. It is fundamental to the whole plan. <laughs> like that language is very common to see from our prophets and our leaders. And so, um, 
yeah i i guess i i think it's not only is it um unhelpful to 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 push that idea but i do think it is actually harmful to gay members of the church who hear this idea push that maybe things will change in the direction to where same-sex relationships or same-sex marriages will be performed in the temple i think that's a very damning message to push and creates this sort of religious paralysis which is really good really hard to get over yeah i i just it really concerns me honestly It, it really concerns me because i know i have friends and they've got gay members of the church and their family and 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 there and so there becomes this this rallying cry right you become an ally so to speak of change and and it's not pushing toward those top three identities of president nelson right that president nelson talks about it's it's saying the identities down here are so important that we need to go to the core doctrine and change them from us right that 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 revelation comes from is bottom up and and not top down right and and so these changes need to occur so that we can uh resonate more with members of the church and with culture more widely which is not true it's just true in the west um but it's um and it's a false hope and so you know you talk about the ideas of uh, uh the, the characteristics of of faith hope and charity and then you take that hope in in a salvation which is really what that hope means in, in exaltation and you turn that and you turn the direction of it to change within the church uh, on a core doctrine like that and and now all of a sudden to me it 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 pulls that hope from where it should be and and can really for some people place it with a, a great emphasis on change instead of what faith hope and charity are meant to be and like you said it's a very damning message to people because that's just probably not ever going to happen and uh relying on that is you know how how do you move forward with that if that's what you're relying on this is what we're hoping for and and this is what we're going to advocate for and this is what we're going to rally and protest for and that's that's just an odd uh uh to me uh message that that pulls you away from a christ-centered hope in in exaltation and in you know becoming like the savior yeah i fully am on board with that i i think like how are members of the church who have some sort of sexuality or gender confusion that doesn't align with the plan of salvation how are these members supposed to give their all to something with the inevitability quote unquote of it completely shifting and altering hanging over their heads it's it's just such a again damning idea and something that i think creates a lot of fear um, and a lot more tension for these members of the church who already i mean have high suicide rates have these struggles that they they that just compared to the general public um they are they do struggle with mental health higher so like creating this unnecessary tension I think just adds to that struggle. Now, of course, the response to that would be, well, that's why we need to change it so that we can help with the mental health and there's more higher suicide rate. And, but again, I would go back to the same thing and talk about those eternal principles. I think, I think you've, we've got to focus even more on the eternal. I, it, look, living the covenant path is already very difficult. 
it's a difficult thing to do. There's joy in that, in that struggle and, and in, in overcoming adversity and repentance and etc. cetera, and, and family and everything else and building up trust and, and faith and relationships and a future for the church and for your family. Um, but it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. It's not the easy path. Yeah. So to take that and then add this other false hope in there, to me, is, is like pulling the rug out from underneath a lot of people on that. And, and I think that people that are doing that, whether you're gay or you're advocating for that, I, I just, I, I hope you rethink that. I just, it, it's, it's, it could be very, very damaging, I think, in, instead of focusing on these eternal principles and those higher identities. Um, what is... How would I, how would I phrase, what is the purpose of same-sex attraction and mortality? Huh, that's a great, that's an interesting question um, that I've like obviously considered, considered, but not like pointedly tried to answer. Mm -hmm. I, I, a lot of people take issue with framing same-sex attraction as like a struggle as something that we need to grapple with because they go straight to um, like, oh, you're saying that you need to change your sexuality, but it, it doesn't need to be that like framing same sex attraction as a struggle and not only just same sex attraction, but um, I guess like reconciling your faith in God and your sexuality that is not in line with the plan of salvation at face value. Um, I think that's a more clear way of putting it, I guess. But I, I, I think it like the, it, there is something to comparing it to any sort of other inclination or um, struggle that people have that um, get, like makes it easy for them to exclude themselves from the plan of salvation, or it just makes the path a little bit more complex. We all have things that we grapple with that are um, part of our our fallen nature as mortals, and um, again, people would also take issue with that. I I personally think it's a a reasonable comparison and um, something that I am meant to grapple with and to use in order to like understand the world in a kind of more unique way or used to rely on my savior more not again not to change my sexuality that's not i don't think that is going anywhere in this life at least but it is something that i have to wrestle with and i and i do have to um like reconcile my faith in god and my innate attractions my desires and and try to fit those into the plan of salvation and i've been really fortunate to again find not every gay member of the church is able to do this, but find a loving, happy, fulfilling relationship with a woman and, um, and have children. And it's, um, been, of course there's been hardship in our lives, but me being gay is not the primary difficulty in our marriage. It's the typical, yeah, your parents, your, your, your spouses, you're trying to get through life every day. It's Yeah. Certainly. Right. There's a lot of the same. What now? Uh, 
does should should gay members of the church look to be married to the opposite sex i think um personally like coming from a situation coming from the experience of being in a loving fulfilling marriage to a woman i want like i want to say yes like for every gay member of the church yes they should pursue that um the more and more examples i see of instances where it hasn't been successful or it, it's um more of a strain than it's worth i guess i i wish i could pr- prescribe that to every gay member of the church but i can't do that but i will say i think um not putting it off the table ever is a good idea i think if you put the, the idea of, of being with the, a member of the opposite sex if you completely take that off the table um, that is going to limit your um, of, like the availability of that ever happening. That's going to make it a lot more difficult. And if you believe in the reality of the restoration, it makes sense to believe in the re- reality of the plan of salvation and um, the atonement, its ability to strengthen us and to help us to live the gospel. So I would say to gay members of the church to don't take it off the table but you don't have to feel this this sort of like um, franticism to get to marriage in the temple. Like you don't need to worry about that so much that you don't focus on the present and don't um, focus on yourself. Like you need to get into a position where you are going to be successful in a marriage. A marriage is not a band aid. Just like having children is not a band-aid to a bad marriage. We need to do like we need to do the work to become a good spouse. And then if the opportunity presents itself, obviously be prayerful. Um, but if it feels right and if it if it feels um fulfilling, go for it and um yeah. <laughs> and and with the knowledge then, right, that your sexuality is not going to change. Right. Right. Just because you go get married, it's not like, wow, this is like you said, a bandaid or, or something that's, I take a pill and this is now all going to change. It's yeah. It's like, no, you need to approach this with reality and, and understanding and, and uh, again, eternal principles that, that, uh, that are going to be guiding you on that. Um, finishing up here on, on, a, on, well, let me ask you this question before I get to this other one. What, if you were to give advice to a young gay Latter-day Saint who, let's say they're, they're in their, they're discovering who they are, they're discovering their sexuality, maybe they're in college, they're in their mid-20s or later, and, and they're struggling with this movement of identitarianism on one side, um, the, the principles of a traditional family and exaltation and temple marriage on the other. And um, they have a testimony, but it feels like they're being pulled apart sometimes. What advice would you give to, to a young gay Latter-day Saint? I would say, first of all, to craft your environment um, to, to where you are centered around 
gospel affirming people, not, not like self affirming, affirming or anything like that. Look, look for good influences. And then in every aspects of your life, whether it's online or in person with your friends, you are a product of your environment there. There's a lot of criticism of um, echo chambers. And I think rightfully so, like we do need to get outside of our bubbles and see what, what else is out there, but we are products of our environment. And if we, especially with social media, these young people are not, are, are not biologically equipped to handle this increased amount of information with contradictory ideas like growing up and in that environment is so self is so destructive. So find good examples of, of people who are living their covenants and will push you to do the same and just embrace, embrace those people in your life. Okay. Yeah. That um, would be my big piece of advice. On okay. That. Uh, lastly, and taking a little bit of a different direction here, you had a child, uh, Milo, who was born at 24 and a half weeks old, weighed 1.8 pounds. He lived for a month in the ICU and then passed away from an infection. What, how has that impacted you? What, in going through something like that, what does the gospel mean to you? And, and how has that impacted you and your wife? It, um, so yeah, so that's, yeah, a huge other part of our story that I, I've talked about in, in other episodes more at length. So I, I won't obviously go into a lot of detail. Um, I'm also writing a book right now and, and, and have a whole chapter about that. So just like broadly speaking, that whole experience, um, was obviously the hardest thing that I've ever gone through that my wife has ever gone through. Um, he was our, our first boy. He, um, yeah, like you said, he was born early, weighed one and a half pounds. Go, just going through that whole experience, you're first of all becoming a parent for the first time, becoming a father. Your children open chambers of your heart that you didn't know existed, and like they open your world to this new type of love. Um, and seeing him just so helpless in the NICU where he lived in his little isolate, hooked up to all these wires, seeing someone so innocent go through such pain obviously brought a lot of parallels to the savior and not only that but like also to um our father in heaven i start i started kind of like comparing in my mind how god must have felt watching his son his innocent son go through such pain and suffering um Obviously, what Milo went through is is not comparable to what the Savior went through, but like that idea is still ever present. So there are a lot of these parallels that that um, cropped up in my mind and and taught me a lot about the Savior and about my Heavenly Father and, and my relationship with with them. And and then obviously the the doctrine of eternal families was what got Amanda, my wife, and I through it, knowing that we would be able to see him again. Um, has brought immense strength to us in our relationship and has brought us closer together going through that hardship. I think when you go through hardship, you have two choices. You either withdraw um, with your couple or with God, or you rely on each other. And we were 
fortunate enough to pick the ladder and, and rely on each other and and grow um, as we went through this heart wrenching heart wrenching experience. And we came out just all the closer, all the more committed. Um, he, I mean, he he is kind of a, a conduit to our savior in a lot of ways. He helped us understand um, and like look to the afterlife more and look to our savior and, and, and look forward to a time where we can be with him again. And um, yeah, it, it just, he did a lot for us. He helped mend family relationships. There are a lot of blessings that came out of this tragedy that we, we still miss him. Like that pain doesn't go away, but it gets easier to deal with and looking for the good that did come out of it has helped us to cope and to move forward with our lives and, and feel that strength. Well, I appreciate your humility on that. And, and, uh, you know, we all run through challenges, uh, and it's, it's easy, I think at times to become bitter or to, uh, throw up your hands and, and, uh, give up. But, uh, again, as the theme kind of going through this interview here is, you know, you got to stick to these eternal principles and that's going to what, that's, what's going to give you the buoyancy to rise up against these waters and the adversity and, and what's going to bring joy to you. So I appreciate your example also. And, uh, for a lot of those that are out there that, uh, are gay and, and perhaps struggling within the church, um, I think they need more examples of people that are sticking to the covenant path and, uh, and under despite, you know, or, or regardless of what they might choose for their their family circumstances, right? It's it's if you're sticking to those covenant paths, uh, then then I believe that there is uh, um, eternally it, it's what's going to bring joy and happiness to you. So, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit with us, and uh, maybe we'll do this again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.